0: Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. Uh, Welcome to Eastlake. If you're a first-time guest, my name is Brandon. I'm the teaching pastor. We try and create uh, Eastlake or have Eastlake be a place every week. It's a little bit different from any environment the rest of the week, a place to uh, reflect, uh, a place to connect, and a place to grow. Um, So hopefully uh, you find that to be the case uh, in your time here. And if you're a regular tender, welcome back. We are uh, continuing, not finishing, uh, continuing our series, Through Peasant Eyes. It's a series on the parables as they're found in Luke. Um, parables, Jesus, uh, are basically stories. Jesus would leverage fictional stories to communicate truths that he wanted people to feel. Uh, and you, you know how this is because some of your, your favorite books or some of your favorite artists or some of your favorite movies do the same thing. It's a fictional story, but it feels real. And something about that truth makes it feel even like a deeper sense of realness. And even though you've watched the movie 10 times or read through the book a couple of times before it just hits you, hits you differently every time you do it, it's a really good way to do it, um. So Jesus would tell stories, and then his audience uh, in these stories was a big deal too. He would oftentimes, uh, in the, the the gospel stories, uh, would talk about how he went to a mountainside. He went out into a, a field. He would go outside on, on Solomon's porch, the part that part of the temple. He would have different spaces that he would go to, uh, and his audience during those times would be uh, oftentimes first century peasants. Um, and they would have uh, almost no money. They would be the outcasts of the society. They would be the ones who weren't typically invited to kind of come here. The traveling rabbis come through, uh, and do their thing. Um, and he was oftentimes criticized for this. People would say he dines with sinners and tax collectors. Like he hangs out with them. Have you seen? Yes, he's got a big following, but have you seen who his following is? Because even back then, people would prize membership into certain things. They would prize the ability to be like, I'm in and I have exclusive rights as a, as a member of this society. And to be a part of Jesus' thing would have no exclusive rights and seemingly no membership. And we don't like that. Human nature is like, yeah, but where can you get lunch for dollar fifty? You have to be a member to be able to kind of enjoy that kind of a hot dog and a soda for only $1.50. Am I right, everybody? There's an exclusivity that comes with a badge. Like, I flash my badge. You know who I am, Daryl. Thank you for letting me through. Uh, that, that feels good. There's something about that. And Jesus' following had no, none of that, and, so, and, people, and people would criticize him. And so we said, there's a thing about those that audience or that type of an audience their kind of life the way that they do life the way that they would live paycheck to paycheck or hand to mouth or whatever um, the fact that they had no retirement the that the fact that they had no access to the some of the ease and convenience that we would have means that his stories and the way that they would and the way that he would tell them would hit a little bit differently for them they would hear things that we don't hear they would see things that we don't hear and so for a few weeks what if we uh, kind of set aside as best as we could our modern Western bias and mindset in our eyes and perhaps see things uh, the way that they they would, which re- requires some sort of a historical take on some things, looking, it, uh, looking at it with a, a conviction of these things and a, and a background that we may not be used to if we just kind of open up our Bibles and begin to read them. So that's what we've been doing for a couple of weeks. We've gone through three so far, um, and we're, we're doing the fourth one today. If if all of this this approach interests you and you're new to this sort of thing, there's a website, uh, eastlaketricities.com slash talks, uh, as well as... Um, uh, a uh, an app that you can download and do this. Here's the thing, too. I know it's super windy. I know there's like this noise that you guys can hear. That everybody's first service, like, can you, anybody else hear that? Uh, we have some HVAC stuff. I was just on the roof about five minutes ago, so my hair is a little bit windblown. We're working on it. I'm going to ask you to kind of plow through and be like, that's just it's, it's background noise. It's like a white noise thing for us today. We're all we're all going to kind of process through and think about it. So if and you're watching along, going, what is he talking about? Well, you would know if you were here. So there you go. Um Today we're going to be talking about the parable of the ba- of the great banquet. It shows up in Luke chapter fourteen, verse fifteen through twenty four. There's another version of it that Mar- uh, that Matthew tells in his uh, version of the Jesus story, uh, but it does shake out a little bit differently. And we're going through Luke's version anyway, so I, I like th- this version of it. Um, the context of the scenario, because there's always a context. He's dining at a Pharisee's house. He's having a meal there. They would share meals together. They would share stories. They would. This would be kind of a socio economic affair as well, depending on who got invited to the parties. In the same way that you're careful about who you invite to parties to sometimes, right? Um, and so Jesus is noticing a few things about this. The, the, the conversation leading up to this, as he would say, hey, one of the things I noticed about this when you, when, when you all came in the room, you begin to kind of position yourselves on who would begin to sit where. Uh, And then when the meal started, you all sat down in terms of uh, the head of the table was the host, obviously, but then like um, where you fit in terms of coolness factor would kind of go down. And so if you were in the middle of the table, you know, I'm about middle cool. And then if I'm towards the end, um, I'm less, I I know where I stand at least. And I I go there and he's like, "I I saw you kind of drafting and moving things in kind of like NASCAR. Everybody's kind of moving and positioning themselves. And he goes, he just offers some advice. Hey, just one way of doing things. Um, instead of sitting down where you think you ought to be, what if you're wrong? What if the host has to come up to you and be like, you're not that cool, but You need to go three seats over. How embarrassing would that be? Wouldn't it be better to kind of position yourself at the end of the table, and then the host has to come to you and be like, dude, no, 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 you're cooler than that. Come over here, right? That's just a better way to do things. He's trying to draw them into humility and challenge like their current assumptions or way of doing things. So he, he's doing this in a, in a creative way. Uh, and then he says, and I also noticed this you also invited all of the people who could do something for you in return to this party. Everyone that you invited um, are people who will eventually throw parties themselves and you will get an invitation for it. It's, it's almost as if um, you your spouse or significant other makes an observation you only buy gifts for people who are going to get you Christmas gifts in return. And you're like, of course, why would I buy a gift, a Christmas gift for somebody who doesn't give me anything in return? I'm not an animal. I don't expect, you know, whatever. So uh, there's some of that at play in this. And then what happens and how this parable kicks off is somebody, and we don't know who, it doesn't say, somebody speaks up in verse 15. When one of those at the table with him heard Jesus making these observations and life things for them, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And he's making a comment about some sort of a, a thing about how he thinks all of this ends up. in the, A feast in the kingdom of God. He's drawing on this Jewish belief that in the end, what what happens after we die? I and mean, we all have ideas about it. We, we know that we're going to die. And you ask somebody, what do you think happens when you die? And, and we're all taking our best shot and it's all shots in the dark. And any critique on it uh, that is just really unfounded because nobody really knows. And so um, th- this guy thinks, and he's got this Jewish thing behind him of I think in the end, what happens after we die, the best thing possible would be a giant feast, a meal um, somehow in heaven or in the kingdom of God, that God throws a giant feast in a party, which makes sense, right? Because everything about our life centers around some sort of a meal or a feast together. What do you, When we say, what are you looking forward to most about Christmas? Be like, oh man. Christmas dinner, all the family comes in and there's the mom and the dad and the carving the turkey, doing the thing. Thanksgiving's all about a meal. Fourth of July, we say, oh, it's about fireworks. And you're like, it's about grilling hot dogs and burgers on a grill. Everything big happens on a meal. So it's no surprise that even back then they would say, What do you think the end is going to look like? I think it's going to be a big meal. Like we're just humans who think with our stomachs. That's how it's always been. That's how it always will be. And they get it from this passage in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6 through 9. It says this, on this mountain, this is a prophecy, like this is a prophet, mouthpiece of God to this nation. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. And on this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. And he goes on and says, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears. I mean, this is what we hear. Like there's gonna be no death. There's gonna be no tears. There's gonna be a big giant feast. He will remove this people's disgrace from all the earth. Nobody's gonna feel bad anymore. The Lord has spoken and that day they will say surely this is our god we trusted in him and he saved us this is the lord we trusted in him let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation so how does this all end up it's going to be a big party that's what he says that's what he's like it's okay, lord blessed is the person who is invited to the party of this uh, 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 at the end at the end of, uh, of time or whatever right and this is a, a big thing this is what's the end goal how does this all end it ends with food and yet there's assumption that there was this this tagline of for all peoples now in their day and age, the Jewish people held uh, out this idea that God was the God of Israel, that this is unique, that eventually all of the world will funnel to Mount Zion and, and come and gain wisdom from Israel. And, and Israel is called to be this great nation, and we're called to be a, a light on a hill, a city on a, on a hill, um, something that, that all nations will flock to and, and want to be a part of Israel and convert to Judaism and do all of these uh, the, these big things. And um, so for them, it was like, we're here and, and we get to, we, we want to be, um, at this meal, it's going to be perfect and everything's going to be just as it needs to be. And, and, uh, and they, they would deal with this idea of, of language about all nations being invited to this meal differently than we do. We read this and read some sort of a universalist thing that God is the God of the world and God of the universe. And they would say, yes, but he has a special area in his heart for Israel and other people would be invited to this banquet. Sure, but only to shame them, right? For them, it was like you can be invited to this banquet, but you're not really a part of it. You're um, you're here because we're going to point out all of the wrong things that you do. You remember, um, back in the '60s, there was a uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in this this up in the hills near the Dead Sea uh, in this Qumran community is what, is what they're called. There were a bunch of Jewish Essenes, which were like peacekeeping Jews. They were the ones that were like so. Anti-politics. That instead of working through some things, they would just we're going to go up and develop our own compound in the hills, and nobody's going to bother us, and we're going to do our own thing. Um, luckily for us, they were really good at keeping some of their uh, texts and sacred texts and in, in these in, the, in, a, in a way that kept them alive for generations. Anyway, so that's when we found them. Um, but part of their some of their texts that they would read through had interpretations of this this uh, this this Jewish feast or this this feast at the end of time. And they would say, yes, uh, no one is, there. this is what they would read, no one is allowed in who is smitten in his flesh or paralyzed in his feet or hands or lame or blind or deaf or dumb or smitten in his flesh with a visible blemish. There's going to be a banquet and there's going to be a party, but only the best get in. That was oftentimes the message. We want to paint a picture. And they would do this, and we, if you critique them for like, uh, well, what you know, uh, that feels very exclusive they would say yes but god deserves our very best we don't take an unblemished lamb to the the the, the sacrificial uh table we 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 take the best only the best and the brightest get I and you, you see a pattern of that in the old testament right and then you have this attitude of isaiah saying all peoples will come in They're like yes but but only the best right only those who are super qualified for this If you, uh, if you remember, like, during a political season, when any political candidate gets to stand on a podium like this and begin to address, have you noticed who's standing behind them? They are all carefully strategic, depending on where they're at and who they're talking to and who their voting block is. It's, it's either one or the other and, and and those people did not randomly get drawn in there. They were put there by somebody who was paid to make sure that that accurately reflects the vision and the purpose and the, and the, the attitude of the whoever it is that's being voted on or whatever right That's all strategic for so for them they're like, yes, but God is the God of goodness and and wholeness and fullness and so even in this way it's it's almost as if at this banquet, um, this, this person who stands up is trying to make a point of saying, yes, there's gonna be this giant banquet and lucky and blessed are the people who are there because they qualify because they meet sort of the ideals and they meet the standards of this. That's that's why I think Jesus tells this story. A statement has been put out there by somebody at this party saying, blessed and lucky are those who find themselves at this, at this banquet table. And Jesus is about to say, well, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you what I think about this once upon a time, once upon a time. In response to that mindset, Jesus in Luke 14, verse 16 says this, a certain man, right? Once upon a time, a certain man was appearing to a great banquet and inviting many invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike begin to make excuses. The first one said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Next verse, another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still, another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, to which... I mean, Jewish people just cringe that, oh boy, this is a bad party. Then sir, the servant said, what do you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in. We'll get back to that word compel in a minute. So that my house will be full. And I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. An invitation goes out. Once upon a time, there was a big party and invitations were sent out. Now, Invitations being sent out are a big deal. My guess is that this weekend you had somebody text you and say, hey, we're doing this. You wanna go? You wanna come? And how you respond to that. There are different sorts of personalities that respond to invitations that come via text message. I wanna talk about a few of those. This isn't biblical. This is just Brent observation stuff, okay? And this is fine. Jesus did this at the table too. So Jesus did this with the whole, I see this is happening. This is Brent saying, hey, I see this is happening with you, all right? How do you respond when you get a text that says, let me know if you can make it. Let me know if you can make it. Now, you could be the immediate responder. You get back to people right away. You let them know, can't make it, can make it, I'm in. Right. This could be because you have the read receipt setting turned on on your phone, which is, I don't even know why that exists. And what are you doing? That is a poor choice in life. You need to make better strategic decisions with your life. You feel obligated. People know I saw this. I don't want to not respond. Now, these are the best friends to have. They're typically extroverts who are up for anything. You don't take much convincing to get them to go to things. And if you're sending out a group invite, to, hey, we're going to go hike Badger today in the wind. You need a few of these on this string to kind of start the ball rolling to let you know that you got somebody going on. That, that, that there's that there's something happening with this, right? Then there's number two is, that, and and by the way, I'm going to walk through all of these. You're going to kind of identify if you came with somebody, you can kind of elbow them or point them out or be like, that's definitely you, right? That's good. The wait and see what everyone else says. Pretty common. This is the wait and see if the immediate responders get in, if there's enough of them. As soon as critical mass has been established, then you respond with parentheses unspoken. Now that others have responded, hey, that sounds like fun. I'm in. That's what you say. Or in reality, What's happening for you is I'm kind of weighing things in and out. I'm trying to see if, A, anything else better comes along. But also, I like going out. I like having some fun, but I also like sweatpants. So I also <laughs> am not sure exactly which one I want to go do. So I wait and see, wait and see. This is the delayed response. It's a couple hours later uh, or whatever. I'm going to go. Then there's the third one. This is the text my significant other and see what he or she wants to do. Right? And, and this one is only appropriate if you're interested in staying married. If you don't care about that, then do whatever you want. But if you want to stay married, then I, I recommend, high, and I live, I live here. I screenshot, I send it to her, you set the schedule, let me know. That's, that's how life works. I did that three times this weekend, whatever. Uh, then there's the fourth version, the shows up even though they didn't RSVP type of person. Got your text. Did you get my text? Yeah, I got it. I just decided to come anyways. And these are typically introverts who eventually guilt themselves into going and talk themselves into it. I should go. I've got nothing else to do. I don't want to sit at home and watch Netflix more than I should, right? So they show up even though they didn't RSVP. And you know what the first words out of their mar- mouth are when they, uh, when they arrive there? They always say this, I don't know how long I can stay. And We're like, I know, Kevin. you got to get going. You've got a busy life, right? I don't know how long I can stay. That's right. All right. And then... Let me know if you can make it. Then you have the next day just now seeing this. Are you guys still at the restaurant person? This is the worst kind of person. Don't be this person, okay? Just now seeing this, whatever, uh, that's not not good enough. So with that in mind, you can now, fun, identify which one you are, laugh about it, have a little chat over lunch or whatever with whoever you came with. But uh, let me know if you can make it. And, and here here's the the the... Here's when it becomes really like intentional or now I got to really do something about it. When that, this alone is too broad. Don't lead with this, but this becomes good. I need to know how much food to order or to make. We got invited to a birthday party this weekend. Let me know if you're coming. I just need to know how much food to make. Then, Then we're like, we have to respond. We have to have our things in order because I don't want to hose this person. This is, this is a, a big deal. Your early confirmation means I know that your plate is going to be there or not going to be there. And if you don't show up, there's gonna, have you ever been to a wedding? You showed up and there's empty tables with empty spots and people put the little, little A-frame things with their names in big bold letters to be like, this is who screwed us. This is who <laughs> cost us money. If you see Kevin and Bill, you know, or whatever, let them know. This is not a, good, not a good sign. They're liars. They're big, fat liars. They said they'd be here, and they're not. In this case, for a first century peasant, they would understand. Listen, the animal is not killed until the RSVP list comes in. We don't know which animal to kill or how many to kill until we know how big this party's going to be. So please... Don't make us kill a cow when a goat would have been enough. RSVP, invitation goes out. And then what would have happened, as we see in the text, is a double invitation goes out. One is just let us know you're coming. And then we don't have, they didn't have times and things associated with it. We'll, they lived in a small enough village. It was like everybody knew everybody. Everybody knew where everybody lived. We'll send somebody out. We'll send one of our servants or one of our kids out to your house an hour before the thing is supposed to start to say the time has now come. The event is now here. Let's do this thing. This is how weddings work, too. Uh, this is this would be a, a big thing. It, it, a lot of it was kind of in flux. They would say, "Block out this evening, and we're not going to give you a time. We'll let you know when the time would be." And then the big party would begin, and be like, "Okay, here comes the messenger. The time has now arrived, and we're we're ready to go." So, in the culture of a double invitation, once to confirm a spot, another to actually come. The second invitation had overtones of continue coming. We're now ready for you. And this would be Jewish. It's not just Jewish. It's Roman, Greek. All the, I mean, the, this was kind of a cultural thing at the time. And it says this in the text, they all from one begin to make excuses or all at once they begin to make excuses for why they couldn't come. Not the first time, not the first invitation. They accepted the first invitation. But when the messenger goes out and says, all right, now we're ready for you. Oh, I can't do this. It's rude to RSVP and then cancel the last minute, but something more perhaps is going on with all of this. Because we've been to those spots where we've said, yes, I can make it to your party. And then all of a sudden, you know, you wake up that morning, you're like, oh, my kid's sick. Or I'm sick. Or this kind of happens. Un- unexpected events happen. Some of them are unavoidable. But some of them, you can tell. You know how you can tell when somebody is making an excuse? Because they didn't even try hard with their excuse like, sorry, I I can't make it. I ran into somebody who knows somebody who has an uncle who tested positive or may have tested positive for COVID. They're waiting on the results. So just in case, just in case, like a year ago, we'd be like, oh yeah, totally stay away. Now we're like, ah, I mean, waiting on the results. You didn't even talk to, I mean, like, I, I don't know. Sounds, sounds flimsy. And then you're like, okay, now you make a mental note. Don't invite that person to the next thing. Or you have this judgment thing that exists in there. So Without knowing some of the uh, background, and through peasant eyes, they would have seen the flimsy excuses that these people are offering. They would have seen the fact that uh, this real estate agent, this this farmer, and, and this bridegroom are making really, really lame excuses that are not just dumb and inconvenient, they're actually insulting to the person who's hosting the party. Here's what we see. In the first one, the real estate expert says, oh, I just bought a field, I must go out and see it. I pray that you have me excused. In all three, the pattern is gonna be, here's what I just did. Here's now what I must do. Please excuse me from your party. I just bought a field. I gotta go now and go see it. This would be the modern day equivalent of somebody saying, I just bought a house. Cool, tell me about it. I don't know anything about it, actually. I just, I found it off Craigslist. There were no pictures. It was just a text thing. And, And I bought it. And you'd be like, are you, I think you're lying to me at this point. No, 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 I gotta go see what it looks like. I can't come to your party, I'm so sorry. You'd be like, you need to rearrange your lifestyle a little bit. You should not be buying houses that you haven't looked at before. Um, you will not have a long-term pattern of being successful in real estate if you continue on this pattern, just so you know. I mean, and the fact for them, nobody buys a field in the Middle East uh, back then without knowing every square foot of it. The details, the springs, the wells, the trees, the walls, the paths would have been documented in the contract of sale, including a listing of all of the people who had previously owned this land as it was oftentimes associated with families and and, and patriarchy and all of these sorts of things. A modern day equivalent would be like, I didn't come to your party, I bought a house off Craigslist and and I need to go take a look. He'd be like, come on, man, come up with a better excuse, that's super dumb. You can do better than that. I mean... There was an option for this man. He could have said, listen, I've been in negotiations with this person over this property of land forever. And they called me up an hour ago and they said, tonight's the night we sign the paperwork and I'm so sorry, I have to leave. But he doesn't come up with a good excuse. He chooses a lame one. And the reason he chooses the lame ones is because he wants to insult the host. He wants it to be a spot where now people are gonna show up to a party that's only half full and they're gonna notice who didn't come, who was for sure invited, but thought they're too good for this party or don't belong here or uh it would be, it's insulting like there's an aggression that's taking place perhaps pa- i think and i think obviously passive aggressive uh to deny the opportunity to, to be able to come and, and do this and and pe- peasant eyes would have figured this thing out they'd have been in part invited to these kind of parties before and known that this person should have been there or at least given the, had the honor or or given the person an excuse that is able to redeem his honor. Because when he comes, when other people show up in the party and be like, hey, where's David at? And he's got to say he bought like a field and hadn't gone and looked at it. And they'd be like, is that what he told you? Be like, yeah. And, be like, and you believed him? And be like, I don't know, I guess. Like that says something dumb about you a little bit too. At least give him something to be like, oh, that's reasonable. That makes sense. That sucks. That's unavoidable. doesn't happen that way. The farming expert. I bought five yoke of oxen. That's what I did. Now, what I now must do is I must go test them. I pray you have me excused. And the reality for them is nobody would have bought work animals without having tested them first. In the same way, you don't buy a car before test driving it. Now, I, I realize that in today's world, people are like, a carvana? Yeah, but only weirdos do that. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, for the most part, if you're going to spend $30,000, dollars $50,000 on a vehicle, whatever it is, and hopefully that's like, I mean, that's uh, that's crazy to be like, did you not have a chance to test drive it? Oh, I did. I just was busy. I didn't want to go do that. You're like, that's insane. What are you talking about? That's not, that's not right, right? So you would do that. Then the last one is this. This one's my favorite. The passionate bridegroom. I have married a bride. Here's what I did. What I now must do, that's going to be unspoken. I cannot come excuse me yeah some of you just got that you're like oh I see what he did there okay I didn't do it he did it excuse me I cannot come he doesn't even say please excuse me from your partner he's very blatant for that reason obviously I cannot come now the reality is that wedding in in these types of villages there would not have been two parties on the same night nobody would have done that intentionally right um, and the, these things would have been planned out in a different way this is probably not like if you got married that day totally totally reasonable but it would have been, like, the message understanding here would have been, I've been married recently. Like, we're young uh, young newlyweds, and I don't want to be away from my wife uh, for uh, for that long. And he would have been like, you know what? It's a party that's in the early afternoon. Like, you'd be home by 9. Like, what? This, this not going to go forever. Like, what, what are you talking about? It would have been a flimsy excuse. And, by the way, the way that he didn't say it and the way that he talked about it or didn't talk about it would have been just kind of like a – Almost like a really, like, it's funny because he omits it. But in that culture, it would have been crude to even insinuate what was going on with a newlywed couple and why I can't make it to your evening affair uh, in this way. So it's crude and I cannot come. I I don't even, he doesn't even ask to be excused. The servant came back, verse 21, and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. To which everyone's like, oh man, this guy couldn't even get enough people to come to his party. He's got to go out and invite the riffraff to this sort of thing, right? His anger is natural, but he's been publicly insulted in this way. But his, his response is not is not vengeance, but it's grace. And these categories symbolize the outcasts of Israel that were so attracted to Jesus in this way. The host is not socially indebted to them in this way. Uh, in this culture, oftentimes these people would never have come to these parties because the, they could never have repaid the host. They would never have thrown parties that he would or she would have been invited to in response to this. And there's a risk involved in this. The original guest may feel so infuriated that their attempt to sabotage the banquet, which is, that's essentially what it is, attempts to sabotage a banquet. They failed and they'll taunt the host as somebody who is unable to put together a banquet without bringing in this sort of riffraff to it. Verse 22, sir, the servant said, what you've ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then my t- master told the servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. One of the translations that I love and read through is the highways and the hedges, which has like this kind of poetic rolling, you know, it, it, the tonality kind of matches. And in, in the Greek, it's what it does too. This is what Jesus is trying to say. Go out to the highways and the byways. Um, go out to the, go out for him beyond Israel. We've gone to the righteous people of Israel, the people who know that they should be invited into the kingdom of heaven. If there is a God and Yahweh's him and all this kind of stuff, they should be the ones that respond Easiest, easiest to this calling into a kingdom of heaven or a way of thinking about the kingdom of heaven. They're the ones that should be in just naturally. And then go to the outcast and invite them in too. They're gonna to be the ones who resist at first, but they're invited in too. And then go into the Gentile world, go into the non-Jewish world, inviting everybody, this this vision of all peoples, all nations that we see in Isaiah. This invitation beyond this. This would have been hard for them. This would have been. Jesus, we think that Israel is special. We think that this is unique and that everybody outside of that has to get to God through Israel. You have to become Jewish to become uh, to become a part of the church or the uh, or the the select or the the ones who make it into the kingdom. You're kind of making it too easy for everybody in this way. This would be his way of challenging that. Even even Matthew in his version of the story of this, uh, and, and in other places, had G- have Jesus focus entirely on the nation of Israel. Somebody would challenge his, his teaching and say, don't distract me. I'm, I'm here to call the people of Israel together. I think it's Matthew kind of writing in what he had heard from this. But I think Jesus is expanding. I think this Jesus has this picture that goes beyond this. I think what you see is Israel existed as a place for a long time that says, come and find wisdom come here and find wisdom. And that remains true, but then Jesus would also say to his disciples in Acts chapter 2, go into all the world and heal. That Jesus perfectly mastered this in-between phase of come and find wisdom and go into the world and heal. And the church, us, the hands and feet of Jesus trying to be and live in the, in the way of Jesus are called to do the same thing. We're called to say on a weekly basis, come and gain wisdom, but then not just sit here and and rot, but go and heal the world. Come and find wisdom and go and heal the world. So in this scenario, he's inviting people into this banquet. He's expanding the walls of who's invited and who's included. Everyone's included, everybody's involved, and everybody's invited into this sort of thing, to come, gain wisdom, to go and heal the world. And what we see is at the end... um, is an open-ended call to action. Uh, this story doesn't wrap up in, in, in the way that we always want good stories to wrap up. Um, the servant goes and invites the poor, the maimed, the broken, the whatever in the community. But when the, when, the, when the command is given to go into the highways and the hedges into the rest of the world and invite them to come in, there's no ending response here. There's no, and that's what the servant did. There's nothing there. Because again, it's a fictional story. It didn't actually happen what he's doing is setting the table for be like which way do you think this person should go do you think he should go do this or not go do this and then like this audience participation thing once you choose what he, you think he or she should do it says something about you that's the beauty of the parables the call to action there's all, there's different paths to take which one should they take which one which, which one should they take what does that say about what you think about this what do you think about going and expanding this to anybody and everybody, a place where everybody's included, everybody's invited, and everybody's involved in this. And then he says, in in, in the words to this servant, go out there and do this and compel them to come in. This word, compel them to come. This has a checkered history with the church, by the way. Like the Spanish Inquisition was like, we know what that means. That means become a Christian or die, right? Uh, Or Calvin's uh, Geneva, Switzerland. Like, there's been areas of the world that have tried to, like, um, establish a theocracy or a God-ordained. This is, we're going to live by biblical terms in our government. We're going to be, if you're going to live here, you're going to be a Christian or whatever. That's a, that's a very aggressive form of compel that I don't think Jesus meant in this way. Compel, I think, in this thing means a different, a different sort of scenario that I think peasants in their first century kind of perspective would have understood in this way. In the Middle East, Uh, when they would have sent out an invitation, there would have been a round of, the first round of invitations are done by obligation um, to people who just by social status deserve to be invited. Now there was an expectation that some of them would reject the invitation and that was fine and all good and everybody plays along. We don't get along, but we're gonna send one anyways. Now, do you remember when uh, you got married and you sat down with your dad or mom or whoever, and they gave you a budget. And they said, here's what you're going to invite. And you're like, it, that looks like it allows me 200 guests. And they're like, that sounds right. And you're like, but I have 400 friends who want to give up a weekend to come celebrate me and see me in my dress. And they're like, you don't, though. You have less than 200 probably, right? <laughs> and financially, you're definitely going to have less than 200, right? Right. And then you started making your list, and you realize I have to, we have to leave some people off, and we have to leave some people on. Oh, my gosh. What are we going to do? And then you came up with your list, and then one of your parents said, hey, you may need to make sure to invite aunt and uncle so-and-so. And you're like, but they suck. I, they're not going to come. And you're like, I know, but they have to be invited. And what if they say yes, and they're not going to say yes? They're going to say no, but you need to send them an invite. And so you're like, well, I'm not going to count that towards my 150, right? And so then you send the invite... And then you got the invite back and it says, uh, with with regrets, cannot make it. And you're like, oh, you did a little dance at the mailbox. You're like, oh, thank God they played along, right? They, but we did it. And now at Thanksgiving or at the family reunion or whatever else, we will going to be like, oh, we sent the invitation. Yeah, yeah, it didn't work with our schedule. We were actually going to be at, you know, tennis lessons with so-and-so. And you're like, totally understand. Oh, oh. Yeah, life gets in the way sometimes, right? And everybody laughs and has a good time about it. But like, there's like this social... That's there's a social game at play in 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 that and how that happens right that's what's happening here too. They had this thing where they would say, listen, it is culturally appropriate if somebody who is wealthy sends you an invitation and you're poor and you do not, you are not their equal to reject the first one. They're just doing it because they're trying to be a good benefactor of society. But don't you dare say, yes, I don't care how hungry you are. It would be social faux pas for you to say, we'll be there and bring in all seven of my children, right? Can't wait for free food. No, 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 you say no, no matter how hungry you are. And then if they actually genuinely want you to be there, They'll send you another invitation to compel you to come. So an example of this is Jesus walking with his disciples, uh, with, with some some disciples. After his resurrection, they're on the road to Emmaus. They're walking this way. He begins to kind of talk to them and they realize who it is that they're talking to. And they're like, oh my goodness. And then it says in verse 29 uh, that, that he was gonna move on. He's like, all right, they, they were taking the exit. They were getting off the road. Uh, and, and they're like, we have to go. Would you like to come stay with us? And he's like, he does the polite thing. No, I'm good. Thank you, thank you. But then they urged him strongly. They compelled him. No, actually we want you. In, in a culture, that prized hospitality. It said, hospitality is absolutely first thing. I'm gonna throw, you throw it out every time. You hope that people say no sometimes, but you throw it out every time. And if they say no, then you can be like, at least I tried. But these guys are like, no, we genuinely want you to stay with us. For it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. Imagine being a stranger and from outside the city and outside the walls of Jerusalem, outside of the nation of Israel, you get this invitation to a great banquet to come. You'd be like, I know what they're doing. They're not really, they don't really want me there. The city is suddenly invited to a great banquet. You're not a relative or even a city, uh, a, a citizen of the host city. The offer is generous and delightful. Thank you so much. But he cannot possibly mean it. And he says, no, compel them to come in. This is so good for us because many, I, I don't know what your history is with the church and Christianity, whatever, but many of us have lived like we were like on the outside. And perhaps for the first time ever, you felt like Eastlake has a low enough bar. You'd be like, I don't know. I kind of feel okay there, which is kind of weird because I don't think they know who I am. So that's great. But uh it's uh, we, we've kind of felt this like with this this holiness of God, this righteousness, this we read this and we, we read all of these things and we know we're like almost nothing like this and we're trying, but we're not very good at it and we have our, our things and our bags and our issues and our hiccups and our hangups and our whatever's and and we and we hear people go, come, you you know you should come to church. Uh, and, and you go, no, 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 it's okay, and they go, oh, okay, you know, and you're like, ah, see, they didn't really want me there. They were just, they wanted to be able to say that they invited me. If I actually showed up and did anything, it would be totally weird. This is them saying, Jesus would say, no, 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 I, I genuinely want you to be a part of this thing. The invitation goes out to anybody and everybody, and he says, I want you to follow in my way, but Jesus, you don't even know who I am. He's like, ah, ah, doesn't matter, but I'm not even a part of your circle. I'm not even a part of your tribe. I'm not a part of your people. The invitation goes out beyond this. Compel them to come in. This is the message that he's trying to in, like communicate to these, these people who are running the religious system of their day. You've been running it in a way that I know you can check a box that says, this is for everybody, but everybody really knows it's not really for them. You've set it up in a way to be like, you're invited, but you're not really invited, just so you know. I'm telling you, compel them to come in. The kingdom of heaven is an all invite thing. It's an all skate. Everyone's included in this sort of thing. This would have been a challenge to them, but we don't want the broken. We want the best and the brightest. Our God deserves the best and the, best and the brightest, the unblemished lamb, the unblemished bull, all the stuff, the perfection. We want to reflect his perfection with us. And he would say, you know what? It's, it's just everybody. And then he goes on, I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Here's the observation that Jesus made in his closing things. There are people, this is an all skate, everyone's who invited. The only people who don't get in are the people who don't want to. This is, just, I, this is the item of the idea of this idea of free will or um, God's not gonna force anything on you. He doesn't create us in one way that's gonna be like, here's who's in, here's who's out. I don't believe in that. I, I think the invitation is to every single person, no matter what, and the only way to not get in, and I don't mean heaven or hell. I, I don't know how that, that all stuff works. I'm saying in the mindset of the kingdom of heaven, everyone's invited, everybody can get in. The only way you don't get in is if you don't wanna get in that he's not gonna force you into this, that C.S. Lewis says the gates of hell are locked from the inside, that we reject it, we do this, that in our lives, no matter what we come up against, the invitation to get right, to get in connection with the heavenly father who loves us, to live in a certain way of doing things is always there and always available. The only time that he will not force himself on us is if we say, hand up, I don't want it, I don't need your help, I don't need your help. Okay, okay, fine, then you do it yourself. Do you realize that you're living in self-destructive tendencies and that I am offering a way of help? I can do it. I can handle it on my own. I can do this on my own, right? My son uh, recently bought a model rocket, and wanted to put it together so bad. I'm like, if you wait till I can get home from work, I'll help you put it together. No, no, no. I got it on my own. I get home and it is just a mangled glue mess. It's all over the place. And I'm like, buddy, I could have helped you do this. No, no, no. I want to do it on my own. I know, but I don't think it's gonna light anymore. You know what I mean? I don't think it's gonna go off. Now it did, and we lost it, and it was it was crazy. And then we found it like a quarter mile later. That's a different story altogether. But it's it's this idea of I can help you. No, 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 no. I don't I don't want, I don't need your help. Okay, but I don't want you to ruin it. And then it gets ruined. You're like, why didn't you help me? And you're like, I, I, whoa, 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 whoa. I offered to help you. The only thing I'm not gonna do is say, no, I am putting together your model rocket that you bought for your birthday, right? How mean of a dad would I be if I was like, no, you bought it with your own money, but I'm doing it because I'm gonna do it right. i be like, that's stupid, man. If the kid wants to ruin his own rocket, who cares? It's his deal. As a loving father, I say, do it yourself. That's great. Now, it's not gonna work, and I'm gonna try and help you and piece it together, and we're gonna try and make this thing, you know work itself out. I think in the same way, this is Jesus saying, this invitation is open to anybody. It's 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 an all-see. Everybody's invited. The only people who don't get in are the people who don't want to get in for whatever, for their own reasons, which is why uh, he said, those who are deliberately absent will, will uh, the, the only people who are not there are the people who are deliberately absent, who make up their own excuses, but that doesn't delay or abort the event itself. My house will be full one of the people i read this week in commentary on this sort of experience or this story said this, that no man can enter the kingdom without the invitation of God, and no man can remain outside it by his own deliberate, but by his own his own deliberate choice. He, Jesus, sees the deepest tragedy of human life, not in the many wrong and foolish things that men do. He's not like, he doesn't go up there and be like, oh, they've They've made so many poor decisions. They're like, "What are we going to do about this?" He doesn't worry about that, or the many good, wise things that they do. You can't earn your way in. You can't force your way out. Right? But in their rejection of God's greatest gift, which is grace, the only way out, the only way to be beyond the saving grace of God is to be the kind person to be like, "I don't want it, no matter what." That's the rejection piece that's in in this. So, that's what Jesus is telling them in this story, guys. You've created this system, guys. This is, everyone's in the only people who, do, who don't get in this party are the people who don't want to be there. What are you going to do with that story? What, what, what are you going to respond with? How are, you going to, how are you going to deal with that story? That's, and that's the call to action. That's the end game. Which path are they going to choose? I don't know. He doesn't tell it to us. He gets, the, he lets them have a chance to choose which one they want to do. And for us, the same thing. What do we do with that information? Which 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 way is the right way to think about this? What does that say about, you. May we believe in his invitation into the kingdom as it comes to us. May we absolve ourselves from the lame excuses that we often could potentially throw up. I would accept, you know, dumb things. And may we live well in the tension between come and find wisdom and go out and heal. May we be recipients of that and may we be dispensers of that. Come and find wisdom. I I think there's wisdom here. I think there's wisdom here. I think there's wisdom here. Come and find wisdom, go out and heal, go out and heal into this world. I think the parable of the great banquet has many things to say, not just to a Jewish people eating dinner, but also to all of us. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is that you would help us to understand this on a deeper level. Help us to see these things through the peasant eyes. Help us to experience this in perhaps the way that they would experience this to hear this story, to hear this invitation, to know that the only way that we find ourselves outside of your grace is if we choose that path on our own because you have chosen not to force yourself uh, force yourself on us. So give us the grace to understand this, the courage to do something about it in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, EastLakeTriCities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri-Cities in your favorite app store.